This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on big boats? Are you always like, what goes on below deck? Hi, this is Anna Hosnier. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads. And we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs. And we're going to release an episode a day so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class. From HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candace Keener, joined by staff writer Jane McGrath. Hey there, Candace. Hey, Jane, you sound a little bit sniffly over there. Yeah, I kind of have a cold. I think I got it from Josh Clark. What a bully. Yeah. Well, today we're actually going to take up a topic that a lot of our listeners have emailed us about. We get a lot of requests for podcasts about the Civil War, and uh, we're certainly no Ken Burns, and we're certainly not ambitious enough to try to tackle the entire Civil War in a single podcast. So we thought we might approach this in segments, and so today we're starting with what is, I, I think, pretty indisputably one of the most famous battles of the Civil War, and that's Gettysburg. Yeah, we have a great article on the site that goes into really good detail about what happened during the battle we're going to go over. And um, if you have the chance to um, be near a computer and, and look at the great visuals, that will help you a lot on when we uh, talk about different parts of the battle. Formations and lines and right. numbers of men and strategies, especially. So what's interesting about the Battle of Gettysburg is that it occurred not early on, but maybe toward the middle of the Civil War. It ranged from July 1st to 3rd, 1863. And even though there were still two more years of war after Gettysburg, this was considered a major turning point. Because until now, the South had been waging some major victories. And if you look at the motivation of the Confederates and the Union, you can see that the Confederates had a lot on a lot on the line. You know, for one, slavery was the South's institution, and they were fighting to preserve it. And furthermore, a lot of the fighting had been taking place on southern soil, and so these men were fighting to protect their land, their homes, their families. They had a lot at stake. Meanwhile, many men from the north, while a lot had abolitionist uh, causes at heart, weren't as committed to fighting in the war. They'd been tapped for service by Lincoln. They were obligated to fight, but it was a war that they weren't as wholeheartedly invested in. Yeah, you can see that they weren't as excited about it as, like, you know, the the thrill of the South that the, that the South had. But all, that's a good point. But also um, the idea that much of the North people, you know, civilians hadn't seen much action in their own 
in their own land, their own state. And this is a, a real change from that. Um, this battle took place in Pennsylvania. Lee, the, uh, the Confederate general, obviously, was trying to um, invade the North. Ultimately, he wanted to take over Washington. By forging into the North in, in, in this campaign, he was trying to also get European support and just recognition because they were struggling uh, to get recognition. They were secretly trading with the British at this time, with the South was, but obviously they, the, the European powers didn't want to officially take a, a claim because, you know, this was, this was uh, an internal conflict with the United States. They um, didn't want to take a side quite yet. Also, uh, we, we talked in a podcast earlier about the Emancipation Proclamation, and when that was finally um, instituted, that's finally when the European powers wanted to step away from support for the South and say, like, they don't want to support slavery necessarily. So a lot of is at stake at this point, trying to get European support. To give you some context, Gettysburg is a small town in Pennsylvania. It only had a population of about 2,400 at the time. But it was also really important because uh, about 10 roads intersected in the middle of this town. And it was a, it was a major stop for, like, traders and um, just, like, people um, going from, like, Harrisburg in Pennsylvania to uh, the capital of Washington. And it was, a, it was a, a bustling place in that way. And that's kind of what brought uh, the two uh, forces, the South and the North, together at that point, because while Lee was was in enemy territory in the North, he was having trouble um, clothing and and just supporting, feeding his troops. Um, he didn't have the supply lines that he had back in the South. And so they were actually, some troops were suffering from, uh, they needed more shoes. One Southern general, Major, or sorry, Major General A.P. Hill actually heard that there were shoes in Gettysburg that he could take for his men. And that's why he started heading that way. Precisely. So what you're alluding to, Jane, is the fact that Gettysburg was an unplanned battle. Right. No one planned to arrive in Gettysburg simultaneously. Yeah, and, no one and really fight. knew which wh- where the other one was. The North and South didn't know exactly where they were situated at this point, so they sort of stumbled upon each other at Gettysburg. And I think that this battle at Gettysburg was sort of symptomatic of the happenstance circumstances of the Civil War. In the beginning, people thought that the war would be over after a few major decisive battles, and that certainly was not the case. It turned into a war of attrition in which each side was trying to wear the other down, and these massive death tolls were being incurred. And as we'll see, Gettysburg was no exception to that. So here we have a couple of Confederate troops rolling into Gettysburg looking for shoes, and coincidentally, there are Union troops already there. And so we'll see that the South, who'd been so victorious so far, their men had a lot of valor and, and guts and, and courage and maybe a little bit too much arrogance. You know, they were mm. they were men from West Point and the Virginia Military Institute. We'll see that uh, this sort of cockiness paved the way for defeat. Yeah, and especially they were coming off of a win at the Battle of uh, Chancellorsville. Um, the South had a lot of confidence after that, even though they actually, we should note that at that battle, Stonewall Jackson, the great um, Southern leader, was killed accidentally by friendly fire. He was a major liability. And like you mentioned, if it was to become a war of attrition, that sort of put the Confederates at a disadvantage because they had um, less men in general. Precisely. And that was certainly the case at, at Gettysburg. They were outmanned by the um, the North. One uh, major point of uh, we should mention about Gettysburg is that 
Lee actually came um, into conflict, uh, um, butting heads with his subordinate Longstreet. So we have Robert E. Lee and James Longstreet. And Lee is very much a fan of aggressive war tactics, Mm -hmm. whereas James Longstreet prefers defensive tactics. And even though offensive tactics had won the Confederacy Chancellorsville, it had also cost them nearly 12,000 men. And like Jane was saying, if this was a game of numbers, the South simply couldn't afford to take another huge loss like that. And so there are plenty of historians and theorists out there who like to say that this conflict and ideology between Longstreet and Lee is what ultimately cost the South Gettysburg. Right, because some people say Longstreet was sort of um, reluctant and slow to to listen to Lee, and so he didn't act as quickly as he should have. And if Um, you see that portrayed in the movie Gettysburg, you see that Longstreet is made out to be a more contemplative, heroic figure. But there are other historians who would argue that it bordered insubordination because he would sometimes refuse to carry out Lee's orders or he would carry them out so slowly that they were rendered ineffective. Mm-hmm. Sort of play devil's advocate for Lee, at least. He knew at this point that Meade, the uh, Union general at this point, that Meade had never really won a major battle. Mm-hmm. And uh, that also the North had to replace a lot of their seasoned soldiers at that time with inexperienced men. So Lee just sort of felt like uh, also... Um, like we mentioned before, coming off like the confidence of the win at Chancellorsville and, and all these things going with him. He just, he had the, that confidence that he thought he could just take the offensive and it would work out. He did. And let's not forget that the major initiative here was that he was on his way to Washington. He was going to take Washington. He was going to get Europe's recognition of the South and it was going to be a major coup. Mm-hmm. And so you can see how this sort of enthusiasm wound up costing him way too many lives. So we know that the battle lasted for three days. So before we delve into the instances that occurred on each particular day of the battle, here are the highlights. Day one is officially July 1st, 1863. And this is when the troops from both sides roll into town. They've already encountered, you know, they've done their reconnaissance. They know that either side is there. So they know that they're going to be waging a battle. And in Gettysburg, uh, the Confederates actually pushed the Union troops out of the town and uh, to the hills outside of town. And this turned out to be a really bad move because in war, you want the vantage point of a hill because you have the elevation from which to fight and also to scope out what's going on on the other side. Right, you can see the enemy more easily. Exactly. So by day two, which is July 2nd, Lee has a very uh, uh, ill-fated maneuver that he tries where he attacks the Union from the left side, hoping that the right side of the flank will dash over there and help save the guys. And then he's going to have someone else attack them to the right. And then the left will have to rush to the right's rescue. And essentially both sides would crumble. But this attack failed. So on day three, July 3rd, he tries a different tactic, and that is attacking from the center, which also fails. Right. So to go back uh, the day before conflict actually started, you have this Union uh, Major General John Buford who had arrived in Gettysburg and he had two brigades of cavalry with him. And um, he spotted Confederates actually from the top of a Lutheran seminary there. Buford then sent word to Major General John Reynolds, who was about six miles away at this point, who himself sent, reinfor- sent for reinforcements from Union General George Meade, um, who was six mile- miles farther from him at uh, Tawnytown, Maryland. 
So on dawn, on July 1st, this is when Buford officially begins fighting with the Confederate Major General Henry Hath. And he had actually been sent to Gettysburg to procure these infamous shoes. And by 8.30, the Union was already struggling that day. By noon, they were completely pushed out of town and shoved off toward the hills. Right. And these hills, we should mention, were in the south of town. And the Confederates actually tried to push further. Like, they they wanted to um, get the, the north past these good uh, vantage point of the hills, but they were held back by the Iron Brigade, which consisted of about um, 1,800 men, but in the Iron Brigade actually lost uh, 1,200, or at least in, through casualties that day, but they were still able to um, withhold and, and keep their ground on these hills. And what's important, while they were doing that and holding the Confederates back, there were Union troops mobilizing by Cemetery Hill and Culp's Hill, and the Confederates didn't know how many men were being prepared to fight. So by afternoon, you have um, Confederate Heth attacking the southern end of the Union flank and Major uh, General Robert E. Rhodes attacking the northern end. By the end, some people argue that the Confederate Lieutenant General Ewell was actually, um, he didn't push hard enough uh, because he was ordered by Lee to push the north past the hills. But um, he actually instead, he he tried, but he failed at first and he wanted to wait until Longstreet arrived that night historians argue that he didn't try hard enough. And this was a major mistake that probably ultimately cost the battle. And I think at this point, too, Longstreet actually wanted to maneuver the troops around so they could get toward Washington. Right. When he finally arrived that night, and uh, that was the end of of day one. Right. Lee was the one who held on. And perhaps Lee was looking around, and he'd gotten word of some numbers, and he got a little bit cocky because the Confederates actually lost 8,000 men that day, and the new the Union had lost 9,000. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned what Lee knew and what he didn't. Um, one important point that we forgot to mention earlier was that Lee was out of contact with his uh, cavalrymen, which were basically his eyes and his ears, and they were led by J.E.B. Stewart. And um, this was a major disadvantage for the South at this point. Usually during battle, that's a huge advantage to be able to know where your enemy is and everything mm-hmm. like that. And so when Lee, what Lee didn't know hurt him. So like we said, uh, General Longstreet arrived that night at the end of day one. He argued with Lee about what to do. He wanted to take a more defensive position. And then at the beginning of day two, which was July 2nd, uh, the rest of the Union Army came to reinforce their troops. And uh, the Union uh, sort of positioned themselves in the shape of a fish hook at this point, mm-hmm. curving, this is when visuals will help you yes. at this point, curving around Culp's Hill, uh, snaking around Cemetery Hill, uh, down Cemetery Ridge to the hills of Little Round Top and Round Top, which were um, hills. And um, the Confederates were sort of in a long, thin, concave line. Longstreet and Ewell were on the flanks either side, and Hill was in the center. Lee actually ordered Ewell to attack the Union right, and around Cemetery and Culp's Hill and Longstreet to attack Union left. But unfortunately, both of these attacks were delayed at this point for various reasons, and Longstreet and um, his counterpart were not able to attack till late afternoon that day. So at this point, the Union commander, Daniel Sickles, actually takes his troops and moves them down into Peach Orchard and then toward Wheatfield and Devil's Den. And yeah, and Longstreet wasn't really expecting him that. No. Right. And that's why these are such notorious battles, because they were so blown bloody and so violent and, and so many deaths incurred mm-hmm. through here. And um, 
essentially what they were kind of fighting for at this point was a little round top, because this is where elevation comes back into play. This is such a pivotal point where you can watch the movement down below. You can see what the other side is doing. So Colonel Chamberlain actually wanted to defend his Union troops place on top of little round top so that the Confederates couldn't get to it. And he stood his ground for two hours with the Confederates just firing away at them. And he eventually lost a third of his men before he commanded a very famous bayonet charge to take out the Confederates. And this sort of saved the Union flank at that point. Mm -hmm. It was very successful. Um, So actually, by the end of the day, too, both sides lost about 9,000 men. It was about equal, but certainly bloody. So that brings us to day three, July 3rd. Before dawn, actually, the Union actually took back ground that they had lost the day before around Culp's Hill. And um, this immediately foiled Lee's hopes of attacking the right flank of the Union. Right. So he's thinking that he's going to attack the center. And Longstreet, again, a very common theme, is disagreeing with him and saying, no, I don't think that this is going to work. And in fact, it did not. So... A major point of contention between Longstreet and Lee was that in order to get to the men on uh, Culp's Hill, they're going to have to march through about three-quarters of a mile of an open field. And so the Confederates down below were just in wide-open expanses, you know, perfectly positioned to be shot at from the Union troops who had the position on an elevated plane. Yeah, so you can understand why Longstreet objected to this plan, but Lee argued that the Union was weakened. He thought that um, the Union didn't have much left in them. And but guess who Yeah, and guess who comes <laughs> along at this point who's been missing out on all the action? The Confederate Major General George Pickett. Yeah, he really jumped on the chance because he had he'd missed. Like you said, he had missed a lot of the action beforehand. He wanted to prove himself at this point. And we shouldn't mention that Pickett wasn't the only, like he had his, um, his uh, brigade, but he wasn't the only one who had men there, but he his men led the charge, and so that's why it's mm-hmm. referred to as, as Pickett's, Pickett's charge. charge, which was comprised of 15,000 men, like Jane said, 5,000 of whom were actually Pickett's men, and 10,000 who technically belonged to Longstreet. So, again, Longstreet really opposes this idea of uh, the Confederate soldiers rushing towards Cemetery Ridge, but Pickett insists, and so he leads the charge. And what's really uh, tricky at this point is that the Union soldiers have been firing from their elevated point, and then um, they decide that they're going to pull the wool over the Confederates' eyes. So they stop firing entirely to trick the, the Confederates into thinking that they've run out of ammunition. And so this gives the Confederates an even falser sense of confidence as they continue to push forward. So they're sort of walking into a trap at that point. Exactly. Yeah, and Longstreet ordered uh, Pickett's charge ultimately around 3 p.m., didn't end up very well. 15,000 men, uh, Confederate men, went up against about 10,000 Union infantrymen. But, of course, even though the Confederate had more men at this point, at this little skirmish, the, the Union, as we mentioned, has the upper hand by the uh, ground, the higher ground. And so it ultimately failed for the Confederates. Uh, they lost about half of their um, men in the attack and all 13 colonels. Actually, one Confederate brigade, brigade led by uh, Brigadier General Louis Armistead actually made it to the top of the ridge. He was actually shot down soon after reaching the top, but it was about this point where we um, know as the the high watermark of the Confederacy. And this sort of, it doesn't necessarily recognize the farthest north that the Confederates literally got, but because obviously they're fighting towards the south at this point, just in terms of the terrain of Gettysburg. But it does, it's very symbolic in that it's the the sort of um, the best chance they had for the northern invasion. Like we said, they, they got to that point, but they weren't able to hold it. 
and that was sort of the last uh, ditch effort for the Confederates at that point. So it became pretty apparent now that the battle was over and that the Confederates had lost, and those who could slunk back to their troops. Some just died in the middle of this field, and they retreated. All the troops that were still able to be mobilized yeah. retreated. And some numbers for you, just to put this in perspective, out of 88,000 Union troops, 23,000 were wounded or killed. And that was 26.1% of the Union's forces. By contrast, 75,000 Confederate troops, 28,000 wounded or killed for a total percentage of 37.3 of Confederate men. So Southern obviously took uh, the harder hit in the exactly. and, and in a war of attrition, you really can't afford to lose numbers like that. Exactly. So the Confederates went back to Virginia, and they didn't venture back into the North again, and Washington was essentially saved. And Lincoln was very upset with General Meade for not essentially finishing off the Confederate troops. Yeah, Lee was actually expecting an attack after when he was retreating, and that never came. And a lot of people criticized Meade for not taking that opportunity to sort mm-hmm. of, you know, you know, to put it not very nicely, but to kick them when they're down. Like, exactly. this was a perfect opportunity to sort of just clinch it. And we're not quite sure why. Historians speculate that the troops were so physically exhausted by this point and so many men were down that Meade couldn't gather enough men to kick him when he was down. Right, right. But Mm -hmm. it would have been ideal. And Lincoln was actually so infuriated that he fired Meade. Mm -hmm. And so Meade actually gave the Confederates a chance to scrape themselves up, dust themselves off, and regroup. Yeah, and the North or the South actually um, were able to win a couple more battles before the end of the war. I mean, you probably know this wasn't the end of the war. The war would go on for another two years, even though this was a major turning point, obviously. One thing you might be asking is, like, uh, one of the most famous Union generals at this point was Ulysses S. Grant. And so why wasn't he here? Why haven't we mentioned his name? And that's because he was fighting another battle at this point, a very important battle um, named Vicksburg. And... This was very long as well. It lasted for months. And uh, finally, it ended on the day after Gettysburg ended, July 4th, 1863, after a 47-day siege on that town. It was a Union victory. Uh, Grant came out ahead. And this was uh, very important because it reclaimed the Mississippi River for the north. And this was a vital trade route. And also, in addition to that, it split the South in two, which made um, connections and reinforcements difficult between the South at that point. Grant was actually one of uh, the reasons, uh, probably the reason the the North won the war, because of his strategy of just using the numbers against the South. He was willing to throw the numbers uh, and play the numbers against the South, and even if it meant more casualties, it ultimately resulted in victory. So hopefully in a future podcast, more on Grant later, and we can delve more deeply into Vicksburg And just to wrap up the Battle of Gettysburg, in this place where no one expected to fight, you may be wondering, well, how many civilians were killed in the bloodbath? And the answer is one. And I hesitate to say just one. I already made the mistake of saying earlier, only 8,000. Any death in war is obviously um, a tragedy. And a young woman, about 20 years old, her name was Jenny Wade. She was at her sister's house baking bread, and she was hit by two rogue bullets while she was inside. Aww. So how about that? Yeah, that's Very sad. unfortunate coincidence yeah. getting caught in the crossfire there. And I actually blogged about the unknown soldier of Gettysburg, maybe just one of many unknown soldiers of Gettysburg, a couple of weeks ago on the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog. And if you missed that, The entry pertained to a five-part series in the New York Times by 
Earl Morris, who was writing about an amber type that had been found in a dead soldier's hand, and he had no identification on him, just this old-timey picture of three children. And so the story of tracing down his identity and the idea of just being able to put a, a name and a, and a life to one dead soldier in a field of thousands of dead soldiers was a really touching story. So um, we actually blog about many more topics than just the Civil War on our blog, everything from uh, talking like Shakespeare Day to the latest news and the Great Wall of China excavation. So That's right, and we also um, address some of your questions directly on Mondays now. We do, and every Friday we do a little recap of our podcast. So we certainly hope that you will visit the blogs at HowStuffWorks.com. And also, if you think of any topics you'd like to hear about or have any comments or feedback for Jane and me, be sure to email us at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, guys. My name is Sammy J. I've been working as a correspondent and interviewer since I was 13. And now at 17, I am so honored to be the youngest person to have her own podcast on iHeartRadio. It's called Let's Be Real with Sammy J. We'll have in-depth and unfiltered conversations with celebrities, activists, athletes, and influencers. We'll cover topics we're curious about, topics my guests are passionate about, and topics many of us are just too afraid to talk about. I get past the fluff to what's real. We go there, and it's fun, pretty crazy, and very revealing. Listen to Let's Be Real with Sammy J on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, here to let you know that my podcast, Next Question with me, Katie Couric, is back for its second season. I'll be diving into some big issues, like this country's devastating maternal mortality rate, the rise of astrology, and a little thing called the presidential election. Listen to Next Question. It comes out every Thursday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows.